Greetings, troubled listener. Welcome back to the Troubled Men Podcast. I am Renee Komen, still in the safe house, on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times, and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey. You doing all right, buddy? I'm hanging in there, man. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, finishing up a, a covid isolation week oh really and why is yes. that well i had a, a family member uh who i was in contact with right before they tested positive for covid and actually wound up being symptomatic after the fact and uh so so that uh, set into motion a whole, you know, set of protocols of me isolating since I'd been exposed. And now, and, you know, I told you I'd only had uh, two COVID tests in the past two years up until this week. And now I've had uh, uh, two home tests, which were both negative and uh, a, uh, a PCR test, which was negative, uh, took out, out in the wild. So... So I've been fine, but, uh, so what is your dog's name? <laughs> oh, Manny, Manny, we don't want to talk about the dog. Dog's a, no, uh, did the dog, uh, give, did the dog give you COVID? No, no, no. The dog has passed on Manny. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to bring it up when it was, uh, when it was fresh because it was, uh, it was too, too, uh, too raw so so i just kind of kept that to myself but uh you know she was a sweet dog we're sorry to see her go we still miss her i still walk into the 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 house uh and and then realize and it that stinks she's not of there. dog no 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 it never she never did smell bad she never she was not a, a, a dog that had a bad smell so you got covid from a family member and, well, no, uh, I, I never got COVID. No, no, I just I've been uh, I've been isolating because I did have a close contact. But uh, you know, I, ever, we're all fine here. We've all tested negative, but uh, that's that's over. I'm actually uh, coming out of quarantine. I'm playing a job tomorrow. I'm not sure who else will be there, but uh, but I am playing a job at Gasa Gasa with uh, with uh, loose cattle tomorrow. And actually, all day today, I've been preparing, uh, learning music for uh, a a tour with the iguanas and the great songwriter kevin gordon which is scheduled for next week and as of right now those dates are still on but uh that's that's uh again a fluid situation we're, we're figuring out whether that's gonna go or not it's all gonna be shut down man it's all being shut down Oh, it's, it definitely is, man. I see yeah, other tours being canceled. I see, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, people making different arrangements. It's, it's, it's hard to know, man. This is new territory. I mean, we were there in a situation where we, we didn't have the vaccine and then we did have it and it seemed like everything was okay. And, uh, you know, now we're, we have all these breakthrough cases. So, but why is it so hard now to get tested? I, under, I don't understand. It was, seems like it was so easy to go any uh, drugstore or anything. And now it's like, well, I can't get tested. I can't get tested. What's the, I don't understand the whole thing. Well, because they've, they've run out of, of home tests. Like, you can't buy Did them. Did they ever have home tests? I didn't even know they had home tests. 
Well, yeah, you could buy home test for like two for $25 at any, any drugstore. But that's for gonorrhea. That's not for COVID. (laughs) I I don't know, but, uh, I don't know about that, but, but they did have uh, COVID tests. In fact, I I was able to buy some, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I had to go to a, a, a certain, Walgreens at a you know not not in my neighborhood they were sold out in my neighborhood but I, I did find them but uh, we've used all those up so now we're we're out of those but I it's you know if you go to one of the public facilities like uh, Mahalia Jackson or out at UNO um, the wait is like an hour in the in the in the line you know to 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 get through even if you have an appointment ahead of time. So it's just demand. Demand is outstripping the uh, the supply and, and their because ability to... Because the idiots uh, who refuse to get shot, the vaccine, are now all panicking. Is that what it is? Well, it's it's that plus the fact that they didn't get uh, vaccinated and so, so the thing keeps uh, circulating around in them and mutating and now we have a, a, the current mutation is, uh, you know, way more transmissible than, than previous uh, variants. So... So uh, the people are, they're, they're not getting as sick from it, but they're getting infected and, and it's very easy to pass this variant on to other people. But anyway, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, take up the whole show talking about all this because uh, it's a new year. We're in the new year. The first show of, of 2022 we're, we have here. And, and maybe the last show. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I I I, I don't have uh, that dark of an outlook on uh, on things. But uh, well, you know, yeah, it is the new year, and a lot of people decide to uh, uh, to uh, say they're you know everyone gets a new start on life. They're going to start doing this and stop doing that and mm-hmm. do resolutions. This. Yeah, all right. those resolutions and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, I know some people who are just really stupid. You know, a lot of stupid (laughs) people out there. In fact, this one guy I know, he's so stupid uh, that he decided to do have a bucket list for this year. You know, okay. And the first thing on his bucket list is suicide. So that's (laughs) not 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 too bright. It's poor planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor planning. And then he wants to go to Europe. You know. (laughs) Okay. Well. You know. Well, you know, depending on where you go in Europe, that that could be a uh, it could could be like you know a, a dual sided coin. You could, yeah. Well, yeah, you yeah. could could uh, kill two birds with one so- stone, so to speak. I know you had big plans for New Year's Day uh, that involved a lot of bowl games and uh, and uh, a bag of Ruffles potato chips. But yeah. uh, as when last we spoke, you were having a hard time locating the Ruffles. How did that come out? Uh, I, it, it was like down. It was like the two minute warning kind of thing. You know, it was down to the last play. I did actually find a bag of Ruffles on uh, very late New Year's Eve. I went out uh, because I heard that the Walgreens on Broad Street had some ruffles. And I went out <coughs> through, you know, the chaos of the bullets flying and the fireworks shooting off and the dogs barking for uh-huh. their lives and the crack whores making deals and stuff like that. I, I made it through all that. And I got to the Walgreens on Broad and I got my bag of ruffles and after that, I, and I zoomed home. I went through red lights and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, and I got home, and so it all turned out well. 
Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, it all turned out well, you know. And this, actually, this New Year's Eve, I actually stayed up to 11.05. I stayed up to 11.05 <laughs> before, uh, before I just had to call it a night and go to sleep. So you could watch the ball drop in New York. You could watch the, uh, the, the main broadcast. Uh... I didn't see that. No, you didn't. <laughs> I didn't, didn't. No, I don't. I didn't. No, I, 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 I've, my, my pants dropped to my ankles and that was about it. And I passed out, you know? Okay. <laughs> so, so like usual. Mm-hmm. But you know, a good, it was a great thing that happened at the end of the year for the city of New Orleans. I don't know if you heard about this. It was a fabulous thing. Uh, New Orleans broke their own record. Did you hear about this? Uh, um, what record was that? For murders. Well, we didn't break a record. No, we did. It, it was two, two. It was two hundred and nineteen, and the last was two hundred in two thousand seven. Was two hundred and eight murders. So we broke that record. Well, I did see that that we had more than we've had since two thousand and four. So our our, our post Katrina, uh, this is a high for the post Katrina era. Yeah. 218 murders. Right. Well, I think last year you might have pointed out that, uh, you know, our, our numbers were getting low or, or at least two years ago. Like, I think 2019, we had only like 126. And I think at that point you were saying, come on, people, we need to uh, yeah, you know, exactly. get in gear here and, and get our numbers back up. And I, I guess, you know, the, the city has taken your uh, taken your lead, Manny, and, and, and they have gotten their numbers back up. And. Now, I'm not telling anyone to go out there and kill, though. I'm not telling people to go out there and kill. But Okay, uh, but it you, was, you thought we you could know, do better. Yeah, we could do better, and, we, and, and the city has. They got 218 for the year 2021, the best in like 13 years. So, uh, and already we're on pace. Apparently over the New Year's holiday, there was about eight murders or something. So we're on pace to break 2021. So crazy, man. I don't understand it. Cause you know, everything's closed. People aren't going out as much, but I, I guess the, the level of frustration is, is high. So, uh, you know, the, I think, I think, I, th I think Flaka is making a comeback. That's what I think it is. Flaka. I think, hmm. yeah, I think Flaka is making a comeback and it's, it's making people want to kill. Cause you never hear about Flaka in New Orleans, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Right. But, uh, you know, on, as I was saying on the same tip, a couple of weeks ago, you were saying how, uh, you know, America in general has fallen down in the, uh, the drunkenness, uh, scale, you know, we're, we're now number right. five and you were, you're proposing a, a campaign to, uh, make America drunk again. Yeah. Cause we've, we, apparently Australia is kicking our butt. You know, right. And, so maybe uh, in 2022, we can, uh, we can get those numbers back up. The, let's go troubled nation. Let's do it. we got to do it. Spread the word, share it on your social media, uh, devices and stuff like that. Let's make America drunk again. Hashtag make America drunk again. Yeah. And the only ones who are really leading the campaign besides me are the native Americans. They're doing their part. They're doing their part. 
Oh, uh, you know, yeah. there, there are pockets of, uh, of strength all over the, the, the population. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, like there, there's, there's people doing their part all over the place, but, uh, you know, we, we got to get a full buy-in from, from the majority. That's, that's what it's yeah. going to take. Well, you know, Manny, since you, since you, we brought this up, there was a, uh, there was an article, uh, about a, uh, city official, uh, getting a DWI pretty recently. And this was right after the, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, you know, right after the, the campaign, I thought, man, they're, they're really partying down. They're still celebrating. It was this guy, uh, 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 Peter Bowen, who is a short-term rental regulation head. Oh, for the, Can- yeah, for the Cantrell administration? Right, right, right. Yeah, he was in the quarter. He, yeah, he was uh, some jarhead, man. The guy looks like a freaking jarhead, man. He, uh, and, and he gets pulled over. He's like, was he sideswiping cars right in the middle of the quarter? And he was, and the cops pulled him over. Go ahead, tell the story. I don't, I don't know the whole story. Right. Well, it said uh, uh, the police were called. Um, it was, uh, it was only like 1105 at, at night, but it was, yes, he had, uh, he had run into two parked cars and, uh, a support pole, uh, a pole supporting a balcony on two homes. And I think he was, uh, they found him again, asleep in the driver's seat of his pickup after he had smashed into these cars. So he was obviously very tired, but his first, uh, response to the police was, uh, Let's see. He, he demanded that they call the New Orleans Police Department Superintendent Sean Ferguson, and warned. He he warned them, "You're going to regret doing this." He said that to <laughs> yeah. the police officers, and and uh, and then he went on to say, uh, "You're going to regret this, and you're not going to be able to uh, get me to comply because I can bench press more than 400 pounds." So <laughs> I thought that was kind of an odd threat. But uh, but again, they found him with his engine running, asleep, and alcohol on his breath. And uh, it said, so uh, I'm I'm reading the whole thing because I'm fascinated by the the, the uh, this guy's behavior. And the police said he's looking at at their badges and and uh, you know going through his glove compartment. And they said, what are you doing going through your glove compartment? He said, I'm looking for my badge. And uh, wow. so. So they they uh, they then take him to the uh, DWI testing facility, and when they get him out of the car, he lays down on the ground and yells, "Call Sean Ferguson." <laughs> 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 then he goes on to uh, he declines a field sobriety test and a breathalyzer, and again repeats to the officers, "Call Sean Ferguson." <laughs> Uh, again, repeating, you're going to regret this. You're going to be suspended for a year. And so I say, well, okay, all right. Uh, so they, they, they have to handcuff him, and, and uh, then he's saying, oh, this hurts my wrist. And so they, they take him to, uh, to the hospital and check out his, his injuries. He has no, no injuries. But uh, I don't know. But he bench presses two nurses at one time. That's what he does. I guess he could, and, and uh, so man, the 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 Cantrell administration is is wasting no time in in uh, in getting back to it. Well, this is you know this is a great defense for anyone who gets pulled over for a DUI. Call Sean Ferguson. You know, right. 
Do you know who I am? Call Sean Ferguson. You know, it could right. just be anyone could just use that. But listen, let's let's. I want to close out real quick and get to our guest. You know, uh, yeah. we had the campaign last fall, and and I thought we did pretty well. I, I made some friends, and uh, I got some new constituents. But at the end of this year, uh, just a couple of days ago, I received a letter from our lieutenant governor Billy Nungesser, mm-hmm. who, who's a really good guy. I like him a lot. He he. Uh, he always, you know, he, uh, I don't think I told you that story, but he bought my wife and I a couple of rounds of drinks about a few months back. And he pulled out a wad of 20s, man, hundreds and 50s. And, you know, any guy like that is okay in my book, you know. But he said, uh, Dear Manny, I'm going to read you this letter. Oh. He said, he said, Dear Manny, thank you for taking the, the leap of faith with your decision to run for office. It takes real courage to make change in Louisiana. And as someone who has lost elections before, do not let this dishearten you from continuing to be a leader in your community and running for office again. Keep up the good work, being a positive force for change in your area. Please know that my staff and I are available to work with you at any time. (laughs) Okay. Together, we will continue to rebuild Louisiana and improve the lives and livelihoods of all the citizens. And then he says, at the end here, he says, Manny, if I can be assistance to you in any way, please don't hesitate to call me on my cell phone. Sincerely, Hmm. Billy. So... Nice, man. Well, I guess if you get pulled over for DWI, you'll have to lay on the ground. <laughs> I could say, and call Billy call. Nungesser. Exactly. Do you know who I am? Call Billy. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, he, he must outrank uh, Sean Ferguson oh, as I, being I a lieutenant so. governor. You know, lieutenant governors, are, you know, they're basically uh, tourism guys, but Anyway, yes, let's get to yes. our let's get to our guest because he's exciting to me and he's been patiently waiting. And I'm surprised he hasn't like uh, put some input into this. Bob, are you there? <laughs> I am here. Uh, okay, well there I, he is. I, I haven't known how to comment on on most of the the New Orleans related issues and events you've discussed. So I, I've just decided to be quiet and learn something. Okay. Okay. He's a he's a quick learner. This 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 <laughs> uh, this guest. Well, let me let me tell the uh, troubled nation all about him, um, and then we're going to really dig into the uh, all the details. So uh, our our guest is a, a fantastic, a highly decorated, award winning <laughs> filmmaker. He's uh, he's uh, again he specializes in music documentaries, but he's made all kind of uh, of documentaries. Uh, he's uh, spent four decades uh, as an independent producer director writer hustler he's uh he's also a college professor and 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 a a handyman around the house uh without further ado the great robert muggy welcome bob thanks very much renee good to meet you manny it's been interesting hearing you you chat i don't know if i can compete with all that oh you can talk bob i i have, (laughs) have no fear have no fear. Uh, you know, so, so, uh, 
for, for those that, that aren't familiar with, with Bob personally, I'm sure everyone has seen his films because if you've ever watched a, a music docu, if you've watched more than three or four music documentaries anywhere like on PBS or anywhere that you could see one, uh, nine times out of 10, if, you're, if you've watched it until the end, meaning it's good, you get to the end and it's by Bob Muggy. Because, uh, again, one of... I generally put my name at the front, too, just so there's no mistake. Okay, a lot of times I, I, I don't <laughs> catch the beginning. So, you know, it's like I'll, I'll come into something halfway through and I go, oh, man, this, this I'm interested in this. So, But then, you know, even if I, I don't know it's yours, at the end it's like, well, of course, it's, it's a, a... Well, and of course, Muggy. two of the films have you in it, in them. Um, Iguana's in the house from, uh, I guess we finished that in 96, and then uh, New Orleans Music in Exile, you and your band, uh, we found you in, uh, in Austin, right. in exile from the, from the New Orleans music community due to Katrina, and um, set, had a lot of great things to say and a lot of beautiful music to play in both films. Well, that's that's one that I've actually uh, people have recognized me uh, and said, "Hey, were you in that uh, that Katrina documentary?" And I, I said, "Yeah, I was." And the guy's like, "Yeah, man, I, I thought that was you, man." Guy, guy uh, that ran this pizza place around the corner from me, He's, he recognized me from that. I was surprised, like, "Oh, wow, cool." Because yeah, man, I really liked what you had to say in there. Like, okay, you were paying attention too. You were wearing a wig then, though, Renee. Uh, no, no, I, I, I had my real hair okay. and, uh, as I still, as I still do. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll get into some of your, your films here, Bob, but, uh, let's, let's go back. Uh, you were, you were, uh, a, a child of the sixties. You were raised in DC, DC suburbs, right? Right. DC suburbs. And made I, I bearable guess... by the fact that there was so much music in DC proper, so we didn't have to drive far to get to it. Okay, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, so you were in, in high school in the 60s. What kind of bands were you seeing in D.C. around then? Actually, I was, I was in a couple of bands. Then uh, the 10th grade, we had one called uh, Lions, The Lion's Den, which was sort of a rock, rock band, and D-I-N, of course. And, um, and then there was a, uh, had a, a soul band, I, you know, I was never that talented as a musician, but always had the huge interest, which is why I'm sure when it came time to, uh, you know, when I finished film school and it was time to, to make films, there were two things I w would like to have done. One was make feature films and the other one was, was make some small, fun music films on the side. And what ended up happening is the screenplays that I wrote for features never took off, but all of a sudden the music films did and they got bigger and the funding got, did as well. And so I decided, well, if that's what the world wants me to do, uh, that's what I'll do. I mean, as you said, I've, I've made a number of docs that are, that are not directly music related. Um, I've made about three dozen, well, I've made exactly three dozen films and, um, I have a a uh, memoir coming out this year on the 25 key music-related films. It's coming out from the University of, of Louisiana at Lafayette Press. And uh, 
Actually, you don't know this, I don't think. You knew about that one. In fact, uh, you did some nice um, fact-checking for me um, about the dates and stuff from when we, when we shot Iguanas in the House with uh, at Keith, Keith Keller's, uh, the late Keith Keller's studio there in New Orleans. But um, actually, I've now submitted to the same publisher a, uh, a manuscript of long interviews by key people from uh, the music films I've made over the year, you know, people, you know, Sonny Rollins, Sun Ra, Al Green, Ruben Blades, you know, Bojack and Buzu Chavis, uh, right. Irma Thomas, and um, uh, just um, Dr. John, Cyril Neville, all sorts of people, but Bobby Rush. But uh, I also have uh, you guys from the Iguanas. So I have um, most of what you said in in the when we shot in nineteen ninety five, and then you remember when we filmed you guys sitting outside of uh, the Continental Club in Austin, and right. you talked not only about what New Orleans and New Orleans uh, music, the music scene there meant to you, but also what what you guys were going through yourselves from the time. Uh, Katrina hit through the relocating to to Austin and your hopes for eventually moving back, which uh, thank goodness you later were able to do. So anyway, it's a book where where I totally let the let the musicians do all the talking. And since I'll often do like a long interview with a with a musician for a film and then only use a few sentences, you know, in the film, mm. I've got these you know, sometimes hours long, you know, like Al Green, we, we talked for hours and Sun Ra, I interviewed him on multiple occasions in various cities. And so just, I thought that there's a lot of wit and a lot of wisdom from, from so many of you great traditional American musicians that uh, I thought it deserved a book of its own. So we'll see what they have to say. I submitted it to them. Um, late last year. Nice, man. That sounds so, so fantastic. Now getting back to your, your, your earliest beginnings there in, in, uh, in DC and you're interested in, in, uh, playing music and, but where does your interest in filmmaking start? Uh, well, I should say, by the way, I was born on the South side of Chicago, but was only, there for for a few months um, until my father uh, moved us first to Atlanta briefly. He was he hit, was in Chicago getting his doctorate in sociology at the University of, of Chicago, which is why I was born on the on the South Side, which also you know it's where University of Chicago is. Um, but then we moved briefly to um, to Atlanta, where he was teaching at a black university. And then uh, we moved uh, to Washington, D.C. real briefly. Then by the time I was two, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. We were there for seven years. And then in 1959, we moved um, permanently to, uh, to Silver Spring, Maryland. I just always had two key loves in the arts. One was, I mean, there was lots of music in our house and, and all the arts in our house, but um, and lots of civil rights and liberal causes and spirituality and lots lots of good things for somebody growing up. But the two key arts 
for me, an interest were, were music and film. And um, I studied uh, film at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and then moved up to Philly and studied for a year of grad work at um, Temple University before I just had had enough of school and um, decided I wanted to start doing what I needed to do to make films. But, uh, you know, the two loves kind of came together into films about music. But as a kid, you're going to the matinee show. What movies are you going to see? Oh, man. I, I, my mother used to, we had four kids in the family. I was the eldest. And she would sometimes um, drop us off, at the, as you say, at the local theater. And I'll never forget, she dropped us off because she wouldn't know what these films were about. But she said, oh, like that's a Western. It's okay. And um, she uh, dropped us off this one time for Sam Fuller's Run of the Arrow, which involves a lot of scalping, both of, of the european americans and of the native americans uh it's a fairly brutal rest uh western and, and gave me an early love for for uh for sam fuller films i thought you're gonna say brutality yeah absolutely your mom just used the matinee show as a babysitter because that's what my mom did she would just absolutely drop, drop the three or four of us off at noon and you'd watch three or four films and a couple of shorts and some cartoons, and she'd pick you up around six or seven. You had to, you know, that the whole time of the theater. Now Samuel Fuller, he's a he's a World War II vet, and lots of his movies involved a lot of violence. Oh, this, yeah, to Steel Helmet as uh, the Big Red One or two yeah. of the um, military ones. My favorite of his films is uh, Pick Up on South Street, which is. Um, the sort, the film about a pickpocket in New York having to deal with communist agents. It was 1953, um, but uh, he he did a lot of really f fun films, often involving like pulp news. Yeah. Well, wasn't he a pulp? Wasn't he a pulp writer? Before yes. Yeah. Yes. And and a, and a, and worked for tabloid newspapers in. New York and all that, and put a lot of a lot of those kind of stories and that sort of attitude into his films, and uh, so yeah, I got really into films like by him and by by Nicholas Ray, you know, films like uh, eventually, you know, films like Johnny Guitar and uh, mm. In a Lonely Room and uh, Oh Rebel Without a Cause, you know, things like that. But when I was a small kid, though, I was like everybody else. I was seeing things like Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, you know, or Zorro or, you know, just right. the, the kind of stuff kids were into. Right. So uh, so some of these uh, early document music documentaries uh, like the D.A. Penny Baker, was that a, a, a big influence on you? Or It's interesting. D.A. Penny Baker's... Uh, don't look back about Bob Dylan. I didn't see for years after that, but that that tour when I was in in high school, where where Dylan played solo the first half and then electric the second half, was sort of a pivotal moment for my relationship with my father, 
because, you know, I had incredible parents. I had nothing to complain about except like every kid, you know, you think you should be in charge of your own life. Plus, the music my father was into was was more classical music and Broadway show tunes and all, which, which I was fine with. But, you know, I was heavy into rock and soul and, and you know, f- folk music of the Dylan sort. Um, and so... I was a junior in high school and this concert of Dylan's was going to take place at, I believe it was at Wisner Auditorium at George Washington University in DC. And my ride copped out on me and, uh, and, uh, I needed lift and he, my father saw how, how desolate I was. So even though he was not a fan of most of my music, he offered to accompany me and oh. actually enjoyed it. So it, it's like, it's one of my favorite, favorite memories of my late father was, was doing that for me because, you know, clearly such a life-changing concert to, to see and hear. Let me ask you something. Did your ride just get drunk and fall asleep in the car? <laughs> well, probably got high, frankly. <laughs> um, this was around, this, let's see. Well, actually, no, you're right. It probably was still drinking in, in like, 66. Um, but, yeah, I, I got to see uh, one of the early tours of the Rolling Stones uh, back when they still had Brian with them. And oh, wow. I remember wearing um, – I was under the influence of, of some friends who were cooler dressers than I was, and this one friend, uh, my buddy Duke Rosenfeld, talked me into getting these uh, slacks called Nutcrackers. <laughs> which were very low waist and very tight. And I remember wearing those, uh, those slacks feeling very cool going to see uh, the Rolling Stones at uh, Washington Coliseum, just sort of a big stage jur- jury rigged out in the middle of, uh, you know, a place that otherwise have a lot of sports and stuff. So do these pants, oh, did they live up to their name? <laughs> they never fully did the job, but they were very tight. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man. Somewhere I read that you said you came from a civil rights household, and you kind of mentioned that uh, earlier in the, the as you were talking. Yeah, my parents, uh, back in like the late 40s, helped to, uh, to integrate some churches, and my mm. father... Um, marched with King a couple times. So, you know, it's, it's not like they had major roles, but, you know, every movement has people doing small things on the local level and all that. But, um, but it, it had a big influence on me. And in fact, I, you know, another manuscript I've written for which I'm trying to find a, um, a uh, publisher so far, I've had a couple offers, but they wanted too many changes. So I said, you know, f off. I'm, I'll, I'll just sit on it until I can find people when it right. But it's a biography of my great grandfather, who was the original Robert Muggy, who was a, um, a German immigrant who came over at the age of seventeen in eighteen seventy, and uh, spent like six years in the Midwest. Then in 1876, he went down to um, to what became Tampa, Florida. It was still um, uh, there was a fort there, and uh, the fort 
they the government eventually sold the land and it was uh, turned into uh, a town which grew into you know a major city eventually but he ended up growing with it and he was he he when he came here he was a um, a jeweler and watchmaker but he saw this potential there and so he he quickly got into the liquor business he 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 had an ever growing um list of uh, saloons he would buy them and sell them and create them and so he usually um for years he had he owned about 20 saloons at a time he had a wholesale liquor wow. business he uh, had a distillery and then he um but he, he had all kinds of businesses he owned uh, none none of the money la- lasted be- much beyond his generation but yeah. uh but uh, he was a really cool guy, and you know this was the Jim Crow South, and but he refused to go along with any of that crap, and um, so he he heavily su- he hired, supported, and partnered with African Americans. So, like with his saloon business, he would often take out the the city, county, and state licenses required to open new saloons, and then he'd he'd turn them over to African-American managers and they would uh, bring in uh, and they would hire fellow African-Americans and, and then that's who would, would drink there because it was Jim Crow, you know, everything was mm-hmm. segregated. So right. these guys who couldn't get licenses on their own, he would uh, give them to them. He built um, one of the first really big African-American hotels in the South because I'm sure you know all the green book stories and everything that- right. For the most part, black musicians and black military people, black tourists, whatever, they had to, most places at best, they, they had to stay with, with uh, church congregations or people they knew and so forth. And uh, he also built a, a big white hotel at the time, which was the biggest building in Tampa. He did all these cool things, but he... He turned over property to a, a. Oh, before that, he he bought a parcel of land in the center of what would become the city, divided it up into lots, and then put a couple black churches, gave them free lots in the middle, and then sold lots to African American um, uh, people who wanted to be homeowners, and no one would would sell to them. There was a nearby uh, black church started by slaves, and he p- paid off its uh, its mortgage. Um, so he just so I I didn't actually know most of this stuff until I researched the guy. Uh, but um, but that he, was the family uh, vibe that that your father grew up in, and, and yeah. Also, so that was that was already carrying yeah. Carrying and my, forth in- my father's dissertation was on. Um, uh, you know, using the terminology of the time, Negro migration in Atlanta, which was why he went down there to teach at this black university and do his research and everything. So, so yeah, when I, without even thinking about it, when it came time for, for me to make these music films, overall, the music I liked the best that moved me the most was black music or, or music of various minorities. And so it just was sort of inevitable that uh, so many of my films would be 
things like Sunrod, Joyful Noise, Gospel According to Al Green, you know, Deep Blues, all about... Gil Scott Heron, yes. Yeah, Gil yeah. Scott, and, exactly. And, and I want to talk about all that, particularly, you know, I, I watched uh, your, your, your classic Deep Blues last night, or actually night before last, even though I've already seen it four times. <laughs> I, I watched it again because you had a, a new uh, master of it, and it was as great as always and, and looked even better. But... Uh, but first, uh, Bob, uh, we always take a, a little break. And, and uh, Manny, I'm looking at my cocktail, and how's yours looking? <laughs> I'm fine, but yeah, we always take a break. But let me ask you one question, Bob. Is there even a statue or monument for this guy who did all this stuff? N- no, and um, I'm hoping that I'll get this book out that will tell about all these things, including his battles with the the local government and the sheriff's office and police department uh, who were always trying to find ways to, to shut him down. And, and the, uh, you know, temperance, really, the whole thing which led to prohibition in this country. He died in 1915, um, right as temperance was really taking hold in the state of Florida, as it was in, in various parts of the, of the country. But, um, some of the best parts of the book I've written are about his battles with the, the temperance forces that were, were trying to shut him down. Um, there are, there are old places in, in Tampa called things like Robert Muggy corner um, from, from years before and stuff. Cause it was a corner that he had one of his saloons on and then owned the other properties. But yeah, he was, even most of my family members don't know the vast majority of the stuff this guy did because I had to go through decades of old uh, newspapers to find all this stuff and public filings and all that. And it shocks the hell out of me that I've found a publisher for a book about me and my work, but haven't yet found one, a suitable one for, for this book about a far more interesting guy than, than me that I never knew because, you know, he died in 1915 and I was born in, in 1950. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break, Robert, and uh, uh, the nation knows what to do, so we'll be right back. Be my
And we're back, back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coman, back with our guest, Mr. Bob Muggy. Now, Bob, I know you're no stranger to, uh, to uh, self-financing or to raising money for a project. And uh, we have had a sponsor or two at, at one time, but uh, we're back to our original sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's Loose Change. It's uh, the, the change that maybe hang around someone's pants pockets or, uh, or their, uh, their, their car ashtray, or uh, I've even heard people find loose change in their daughter's room. So, uh, you know, we're uh, the Trouble Men podcast. We are, as I say, listener-supported. So, uh, uh, Nation, you know, we do have the, the PayPal account. It's uh, paypal.me slash podcast. We also have a Venmo account. Uh, it's uh, uh, at troubled-men. And all those links are in the show notes of each show or the Facebook page. They're all listed there, as well as the, uh, the Patreon page. You know, we have our patrons who support us week in and week out. And I uh, want to give a shout-out to... Uh, Mr. Jack Allen and uh, great Hellcat, Miss Lisa McGoffrin, who uh, came up with a, a, a year-end uh, support for, to last the whole year, and we do we do appreciate those that that generous support. And uh, please uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, rate us, give us a five-star review, uh, uh, and follow us on. Instagram and Facebook and uh, tell your friends about the Trouble Men podcast. So these uh, people uh, gave, they Patreoned us or whatever? What did they uh, do? Uh, yes, uh, Jack Allen and Lisa McGoffer and those were, uh, were just straight one-time uh, uh, gifts. Oh. Contributions. Wow. I, I haven't seen my gift. Where's my gift? It, it's in the mail, <laughs> Manny. Oh, is it? Okay. Anyway, back to our <laughs> guest. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Robert Muggy, Bob Muggy. So, Bob, uh, yes, we were talking about your your one of your landmark films, Deep Blues, where you uh, concentrate on the North Mississippi hill country, uh, guys like R.L. Burnside, Junior Kimbrough, and uh, Miss Jessie Mae Hemphill. Now, you know, I used to play in the band The Panther Burns, which uh, really drew a lot of our inspiration and, uh, you know, took our cues from, from that North Mississippi uh, music. And you were there uh, before. Was that band um, as diverse in traditional sounds as, as the Iguanas is? Um, well, you know, the, the, the Panther Burns, uh, it was uh, hard to describe, but, you know, we, they drew from tango music, uh, rockabilly, uh, electric country blues, um, a, a lot of these, these disparate forms that, uh, you know, Tav Falco, he was a filmmaker in his own right. He had uh, Televista in, in Memphis, mm-hmm. um, and they, they did a lot of documenting of, of some of these same, these same people. Uh, even before Deep Blues. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, a guy that we had on the show before, Robert Gordon. Are you, sure, you know? no, we're old friends. I figured you would be. Yeah. Uh, and and he's, he's well familiar with, with, 
you know, being from Memphis, he's, he's, his, his book, uh, It Came From Memphis, has a lot about Panther Burns and Jim Dickinson, who's one of his mentors, who was also a, a mentor to the Panther Burns. Yeah, early on, he also made a half-hour film about Beale Street, which was a great start as a filmmaker. Yes, and you had uh, Robert Palmer as as the on air talent of of, uh, of Deep Blues, and Robert Palmer actually played with the Panther Burns, played clarinet in some of the the early incarnations of the band. As as you probably know, he also played for a number of years with a band called Insect Trust, and right. the uh, just before we started shooting in um, shooting Deep Blues, you know, we started in in Memphis. We we're we were staying there for a few nights, um, the, produ- the producer and myself and, and Bob Palmer and Bob Palmer's uh, then-girlfriend, then later wife, Joe Beth Britton. Uh, we were just hanging out in Memphis, and uh, Bob all of a sudden let me know that that, that particular night, Insect Trust was going to be playing a, a reunion concert uh, there in Memphis. And so I got to see him perform, got to see... Bob Palmer doing essentially Ornette Coleman on clarinet with a, a with a kind of a progressive rock band, so it was it was a treat. Right, right. That's a guy that liked to party. Not just party, but <laughs> we, there were a lot of fun behind the scenes stories with uh, the making of Deep Blues. But one of them that I talk about in my commentary on the. Uh, or did I talk about it in that commentary on the new Blu-ray and DVD? I'm not sure. It is definitely in the in the Deep Blues chapter of my uh, of my memoir, which should be out by the middle of this year. But every night before we would uh, we would shoot a performance with, as you say, Jesse May Hempel, Junior Kimbrough, or or in the afternoon with Arl Burnside, or later with people like. Uh, Big Jack Johnson or Roosevelt Booby Barnes or uh, uh, whoever, every time before we would go on, Bob would ask if he could sit in on clarinet. And <laughs> I had to say, Bob, you know, the whole idea here is we're supposed to be getting authentic deep blues of the kind you described in your book, um, you know, in in the place where where it was born, where it continues to be created and everything. And just somehow a clarinet sitting in doesn't seem quite the way to go. So, right. so I would, you know, say, why don't you go sit in the audio truck? Uh, was they were, you know, multi-track truck as they record the music. I'm sure they can always, uh, always have, um, it all, always benefit from an additional pair of educated ears and, so he was fine with that. He and Joe Beth would go out and party in the truck while we were, were shooting inside and so forth. But he was a, a brilliant guy, but also quite a character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, you know, uh, just to, to rather than go down, I want to talk about a bunch of these other people. But I'm, I'm thinking as I was watching it, I feel like. Tell me if I'm wrong, but but your approach to to making these films, it seems to me, is rather than having a uh, an idea of what you want to capture ahead of time, you kind of just start pointing the camera mm. and see where it leads you. Am I correct about that? Well, I'm glad it comes off that way. The way I've always uh, described it to people, and including to my students when I was uh, 
endowed chair professor at uh, Ball State here in here in Indiana, uh, which is why I would end up in a place like Indiana. That and I thought it said the sign said Louisiana, and I ended up in the wrong place. <laughs> but um, uh, as I've always told them, before I go out and make a film, I make I never write create scripts, but I always. Uh, create voluminous notes. I fill notebooks full of potential ideas. By the time we're on location, I have maybe 10 different ways I could approach all this material. But then that frees you so that you can just sort of get out there and improvise and let your your subjects improvise. And, and then as you go along, because you've thought of so many different approaches and, and know the kinds of themes you want to want to uh, develop and the sort of information you want to convey and the kinds of performance situations you want to capture usually you know as i say in 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 the places where those musicians live preferably in the playing for the kinds of audiences they usually play for and uh, against the sort of sort of backdrop but um, you kind of know as you go, you start to sculpt a film together in your head and you start to think, well, this could make a transition to this and this provides this point that we wanted made. And so by, you know, by the time you've spent, spent a week or two weeks or even just a few days, whatever it is you can afford and that you've allotted you know, time for, you know what you have and then it's just a matter of getting home and cutting those different camera views of a performance together and mixing the the music and the audio and uh and just cutting things in an order that that provides a narrative that tells your story now you you still you still do all your documentaries you film you film or video it it was film up until the early part until the very early 2000s. Yeah, because I, f- I figured film is way too expensive. Right. Um, I think the last ones we shot were, um, were uh, in uh, 1998, Hellhounds on My Trail, The Afterlife of Robert Johnson, then 1999, released in 2020. Uh, I'm sorry, released in 2000, um, Rhythm and Bayous, A Roadmap to Louisiana Music. And then the final one, uh, which was where we shot film, but then transferred it to video, was uh, uh, Last of the Mississippi Jukes. And then from there, everything was video, starting with the things I did while filmmaker in residence at Mississippi Public Broadcasting, um, uh, Blues Divas, and a number of other things. They had, uh, they had a... HD cam, which is a, one of the early strong HD formats. They had a truck with multiple cameras and, and so forth that, uh, and lighting gear and all that, that we could go off on location and shoot much the way I did with portable film gear and audio gear and all that in the, in the years before. But yeah, it's been, it's been digital video ever since. Well, I want to go back a little bit and, and talk about one of your, your earlier films. Uh, uh, so you, 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 uh, you had the, the Sun Ra film, 
Um, and then it was like your second or third movie. And then right after that, the Gil Scott Heron movie, Black Wax. And Gil Scott Heron is a guy I've always been fascinated by. Uh, he was, you know, very much at the leading edge of, of what he was doing. And um, how did you get interested in, in making him a subject of a film? Well, the way it happened is, yeah, my first, my first film after university was film about the Pulitzer Prize winning composer George Crumb. That led up to uh, a film on Mayor Frank Rizzo. I was living in Philadelphia for many years. And um, so I did a film called Amateur Night at City Hall, the story of Frank L. Rizzo, who was sort of a, you know, a proto-fascist um, on, a, on a more local level. He was, you know, working class Italian American started as a cop on the beat, then a, then a law and order police commissioner. And finally a, a fairly corrupt and autocratic, uh, mayor. Um, but, uh, but a nice guy, right? I know. I'm sure he was, it was a great guy. In fact, he had an affair with, uh, with blaze star. She wrote a really fun book about the kind of guy he was. Uh, who had also had an affair with, I guess it was Earl Long. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, man, she really got around she, the, the political circles. She did. Um, it's funny, there's these certain kinds of uh, of women who are a- attracted to... Um, Lowlifes. Yeah, well, <laughs> low-life politicians. In fact, I used to tease Bob Palmer that... Uh, that Joe Beth Britton and the other women like her clearly liked him for his brain, which was, which was considerable. But I, I had wanted from before I made any of those, I had, I had seen Sun Ra at the 1972 Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival. And I had, I swore right then that one way or another, I was going to make a film about him. And then when I came to Philly to, to go to Temple University, I found that Sun Ra and his orchestra lived there and, and uh, many of them in a, in a house with him. And I started going to see him everywhere I could. And, and after I had you know, raised money to do the George Crumb and the um, uh, Frank Rizzo films, I decided, okay, I'm going to have to make the Sun Ra film without money. I just got to do whatever it takes. And you know, used money to shoot that, that I had made selling like the Frank Rizzo film to Swedish television, um, gave me enough money for the film stock. And then I just got all my friends. It was like an Andy, Andy Hardy, uh, Judy Garland situation. Let's all go out and make a musical, except in this film, it was a music doc. And then it took the hustler in you. That's when I said, you're a hustler. That's the part I'm talking about. You got to learn how early, and, sure. and then I finally uh, found somebody to give me money to complete it. And then I was asked to come over and show that film at the London Film Festival in uh, 19, uh, let's see, I finished the film in 80. And so I guess it was the, um, you're right, the fall of 1981, uh, London Film Festival. And when I got there, the, the guy who was selling my films over there, a guy named Angus Trowbridge, who was actually from New Jersey in spite of that name, but he had a company over there called TCB Releasing. And um, when, when I arrived, he said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but they got this new channel 
you know, it, up until then, it had just been uh, two BBC television channels and then the ITV, which was an outright commercial channel. Well, they had started a new channel called Channel 4 Television as an offshoot of ITV, but it was, uh, it was created to make films for minorities of all kind, racial minorities, religious minorities, even, even business and, uh, and minority sports and things like that. So this guy named Andy Park from uh, Glasgow, uh, Scotland, who is a musician himself and a longtime uh, radio executive and on-air guy in Glasgow and all, had been brought in to be their first commissioning editor for music, music programming. So he had bought the Sun Ra film. So I said, shit, I got nothing happening. I got to try to try to meet with this guy, see if I could, I could um, uh, get him to fund, fund another film. And I was trying to raise money at the time for a film about Carla Blay, the, um, of course, jazz composer and keyboard player and band leader. And so I, I went to this. In fact, I left halfway through my girlfriend at the time, and I went to a Tom Stoppard play, and I had to leave halfway through in order to make the the appointment that I had with this guy, Andy Park. And when I got there, he put on Gil Scott Heron's B-movie, which was in his recently released Reflections album. And I immediately, and, and I had run out of money from making the Sun Ra film, had to move back in with my parents in the DC suburbs for a year again. And, um, and I knew Gil was living in the, uh, in the DC suburbs as well. And, um, so we put it on and I said, Oh yeah, Gil Scott Heron, uh, B movie. I said, um, he said he and I both live in the DC suburbs and, uh, he was on the Virginia side. And he said something no one had ever said to me before and would never say to me again. If someone could make a film on this guy, I would fund the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> so I raced back home, uh, finally found his, one of his managers at the time, which was his brother, Dennis Heron. Um, it was his, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not step, half brother. Um, and, uh, so, uh, Dennis told me that, uh, Gil was going to be performing a concert on his birthday, uh, which was April 1st, April Fool's Days. And it was going to be at this, um, club called the Wax Museum Nightclub, which had been made out of the old DC Wax Museum. And when I contacted the club, I found out that they still had all the old wax figures in a, in a big storeroom. And, um, so I said, gee, if we came and filmed there, filmed, he was going to do two sets. And before each set with his band, he was going to do a, uh, a black history monologue that he had originally done during uh, black history month in February. And so, uh, anyway, I, I convinced Andy to come up with the money fast enough for me to shoot there and convinced the club to let us go in and build a set with the wax figures. And, um, so we filmed, you know, both sets and then also filmed Gil. Uh, I, cre I did what I had done with Sun Ra, which was just create environments in which he could tell his own story in which he could recite his own poetry or his own political, um, thoughts and so forth. And, and then later, 
we thought, well, he and I both had lots to say about D.C. as a black city as opposed to a, a white political city. And so we agreed that I would go shoot him commenting on the Capitol and the Washington Monument, and I'd walk him through Howard University, the great black university there and all that. And he, while we were, were shooting the, um, uh, him w- with the wax figures, he said he pulled out an audio cassette because people still had audio cassettes in those days. This was 1982. And he said, um, you know, he said, I've, I've got, I've got this, um, I've been recording a new album and one of the songs on it is called Washington DC. And he said on this cassette, I've got a few of the instruments and I've got it's sort of half volume, a vocal track, uh, as sort of a guide track. And he said, I could give you this and maybe you could just like put it on the soundtrack. And I said, no, that's not exactly the way I do. So I asked him if, uh, if he could, when we went out around the city, if he could bring that along. And I asked him if he had a, a, um, a boom box and he said, yeah. So I said, great. And so, you know, this is the way I like to collaborate often with the, the people who are subjects of my film, like, you know, with Sun Ra, he and I, would take turns coming up with ideas for where we would film and what we would film and all that. And on this occasion, you know, Gil came up with this idea of this song and I came up with how we, we could use it. And so we walked him around Washington, DC. Um, and, and my, my late sound man put a, put a lavalier mic on, on his chest. So it would pick up Gil singing along with that cassette playing out of the boombox. And, um, and so it just made for a really great effect. And, and then we used that as kind of a motif through the film, a recurring image, you know, so. And he, he's right there by the, by the Potomac, uh, singing along with the, with the, with that, that cassette track. Yes. It's, it's so cool. And what an interesting guy, man. He's a, a troubled guy, but you know, a real visionary, and uh, you know, a, a sensitive soul. Yeah, he had been he had been freebasing for a couple of years. It turned out when uh, when we filmed together for Black Wax, and it hadn't had an adverse effect on him. But by the a year later, when I filmed him again at uh, Sunsplash in Jamaica, although he put on an incredible performance, and I, I used this extended version he did of the bottle in that film. Um, we, we had wanted to walk him around talking, you know, about, um, black history again and about the, you know, the slaves being brought from Africa to the Caribbean and then on to North America and all, but, uh, he just, he just didn't have it quite together to the extent he had back in DC. And so, um too dissipated by that point you know that i'm sure you've seen the the summer of soul documentary that came out this this past year about uh, the whole series of concerts they put on in, in New i York have and, and it bugged the hell out of me that they used uh revolution will not be televised um without the real context for that song the real meanings of that song and used it without us seeing a performance so it's like so i i 
I know why Questlove did it, but I didn't like it. <laughs> it was just a personal thing. Speaking of freebasing, mm-hmm. uh, you did, uh, you did, as you a, do, yeah, you did a thing on Bob Hope, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, he's entertaining the troops, and he was a known freebaser in his later years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Well, I, all I know about Bob Hope is that, you know, he used to entertain the troops and he was with Bing Crosby all those years. But towards the end of his, you know, uh, last 20 years, he, he was one of the biggest uh, uh, assholes you ever wanted to meet, apparently. But uh, so how do you go around to make a how do you make a, a documentary on him? You're doing all these uh, musicians and you come to Bob Hope. Well, what happened was I was putting together a series of my early films for PBS. And then I was meeting with people there a lot. Uh, and, um, you know, I was packaging them into uh, a ser- six 90-minute programs, which aired over uh, a weekly over the summer of 1988. And so I was getting to know these people at PBS. And right around then, a guy whose um, video post facilities I was using in the, in the DC suburbs um, uh, told me about uh, these, the National Archives, how they had all, these, all this incredible footage from World War II, including all these performances um, that were done by people entertaining the troops and stuff. And that led me to researching it, researching it more myself, starting to reach out to some of the people who had, who had been involved back then and, uh, and sold the idea to PBS that I would do a film called Entertaining the Troops about entertainers in World War II who did everything from selling war bonds to being pinup girls to, to entertain the troops. And of course, the biggest star of them all back then doing all this and doing it from the beginning and doing it for like five years, four or five years, was Bob Hope. And he created his own tour, uh, touring uh, troupe of performers, which was made up of um, his good friend, Francis Langford, uh, who is a, a singer and um, sort of small time movie star. Later, she had a gig gig on radio with Don Amici, about John and Marsha, which is where that whole thing of John, Marsha, Marsha, John, you know, <laughs> comes from. It was a, it was a, um, a kind of a, a silly um, romantic uh, series. But she also uh, did a whole thing. She went on for years doing her own stuff for the troops, especially the wounded, um, and and had a a newspaper. Our, our column called uh, Purple Heart Diaries that talked about all her experiences continuing for years even after World War II. But what I, and she had, uh, another key member had been Jerry Colonna, the crazy comedian who had died by this time, uh, which was like 1987 when I was pulling um, a bunch of the people together. But there was also a young, a, a young dancer at the time named Patty Thomas who was brought along for her dance moves, but more because she was young and gorgeous. And then there was a guitarist named Tony Romano. So they, and sometimes a writer, would go out to the front 
all over the world. You know, they were in Europe for years. They were in North Africa. They did things in Hawaii and Latin America. And then they ended up in, uh, in uh, the Pacific and some very dangerous situations. Um, and so I, I created, I got to be friends with Frances Langford, who had her own club and yacht and everything down in, in, in Florida, uh, West Palm. And, um, and then she got me to the rest. And because she was still close to uh, Bob Hope, she convinced him to cooperate. So we, we put together this, uh, this reunion that we filmed for, for a couple hours at uh, his North Hollywood home, as opposed to his main uh, Palm Springs home. Uh, and uh, it just turned out great at the time. Uh, uh, Patty Thomas was 65, Francis Langford was 75, and Bob Hope was 85. And uh, ha- had to use a heavy-duty, uh, what do you call it, uh, hearing aid, because he was pretty deaf already by that point, even though he lived like another 15 years. But once he had, had that in, he was probably the funniest person I have ever met, because he wasn't just like delivering stale jokes out of the file cabinet like he did on, on so many of those TV shows. He simply was drawing on his memories of old jokes and then improvising like hell. And it just, it was an incredible experience. But yes, I don't include that or the Frank Rizzo film in my memoir because it's simply focused on 25 of my key music related films. Most of them, you know, traditional American musicians and musicians very often like the Iguanas and like so many others like Sun Ra, like Gil Scott Heron, like Al Green, who've created some sort of, of, um, of, uh, what's the word? Not fusion, though that works too. Um, bringing together various musical styles and, and other arts, you know, like Gil Scott Heron bringing his poetry and then performing it with jazz and funk and soul and, and, um, and Latin music and so many things or, or Reuben Blades reaching across um, from his original various kinds of Latin music from when he grew up in Panama and, and then trying to do a crossover to uh, American rock music and performing, you know, recorded them in a studio in L.A., uh, him and um, Linda Ronstadt, who was just starting to think herself about reaching back to her own, um, on one side, Mexican um, uh, roots. Yeah. roots and everything, yeah. So, man, Bob, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm embarrassed to uh, blushing over here, getting mentioned in the same same breath as oh, all no, these that's why I giants, was, man. Uh, that's why I had been drawn to you guys ever since I had heard your your first albums on WXPN in Philadelphia, and was just so blown away by you know here's sometimes Mexican music, here's various kinds of roots roots rock, here's you know New Orleans styles, Caribbean styles. Um, it was just, it was just so exciting to me. And, and, uh, can I tell the story of how that first film with you guys came to be? Sure. Go ahead. I was brought down by a guy whose name I won't mention cause he stiffed me and never paid me. 
Um, but he had a, uh, he was programming a small storefront uh, movie theater in New Orleans. And so he brought me down to, uh, to uh, do like a different film or so every night for, for most of a week, put me up in a, in a, in a, a fun, a fun uh, place to stay in, in the quarter. It was actually, it was actually a, um, some sort of a, a, a gay hotel, a small one with a beautiful courtyard. It was very cool. And um, I think it was Joe Cabral initially who came to one or two of those screenings and we struck up a conversation and he told me, uh, he later came back. I can't remember who he came back with, whether it was Doug or you or who, but he came back and then we started talking about the idea of maybe trying to film the album you guys were just starting to record that, uh, that fall of 95. And, um, and so I know you guys were with Margaritaville records at the time. And, um, they had brought in this big deal, um, executive from the UK, uh, Bob, um, what was Bob's last name? Uh, Mercer. Bob Mercer. Yes, yeah. yes. He's the Bob Mercer actually invented that. Uh, uh, now that's what I call music or something where they right. had that whole, he did all those series. Yes. Where he made a fortune by taking all the hits of everybody's record and putting it on one record. I think Bob Mercer was actually the, when the sex pistols did that song EMI, I think that was about Bob Mercer. So anyway, Oh, I, I, you're probably right. I, and I, it was EMI where, right. Where he did all those compilation things, made them a fortune and all. Um, but, uh, God, he, every time I talked to him, he was smoking pot on the phone. I never met him in person, <laughs> but he was always high and, uh, but just a lovely guy. And oh, yeah, yeah. he Absolutely. loved you guys. And he, he, so he, he immediately, I mean, I was able to do one of my, uh, you know, virtually no money budgets. And fortunately it was low enough that he could afford it for us to just come in and shoot for a weekend. And, uh, your friend, uh, Keith Keller, who was just a really a great guy and a terrific producer, um, ran ran the show along with you guys and uh we just had a had a wonderful time and it's the only time i've i've gotten to do that kind of thing where we're where we're shooting with a single camera take after take of different guys go doing like you doing bass and the horns off in a booth and and uh rod and joe singing to microphones in the center of the room and then Keith putting it all together. And, uh, it was just great, great fun. And then I had this incredible half hour by you guys and he couldn't figure out what to do with it. So he just said to me, whatever I could do with it, please do. So for a while, I mostly like showed it at festivals along with other films and stuff. And then years later when, uh, MVD, uh, acquired a, a bunch of my films. We put it on just several years ago. We put it on with um, the Kingdom of Zydeco, my initial film about uh, about Zydeco, and and then of course um, we had such a great time doing that, and uh, all got to be friends. So that when um, Diane and I made our first film together, 
New Orleans music in, in exile and convinced the people at Stars who had an, previously funded my um, film Last of the Mississippi Jukes and, um, and then acquired the two-hour film version of my uh, Blues Divas series that I made at Mississippi Public Broadcasting, I, start, I laid out to them the acts that I felt had to be in it and you guys were were right there at the top, along with you know Irma Thomas and Kermit Ruffins and uh, Marsha Ball and yes. um, and uh, Cyril Neville and uh, oh, God yeah. bless you, Bob. Well, and it was uh, it was wonderful, and you know I had I have to tell you, you know, as I probably told you at the time, this may not seem like as positive a reason for doing it, but I felt like. We had to get this film made a couple months after after Katrina hit for a couple of reasons. One, because I felt like we had to really find a way to help, you know, to draw attention to what all of you guys were going through. But I also told them at Stars, if you want to get these guys where we really feel the emotion of what's going on, we've got to do it now. We've got to not just go to New Orleans. We got to go to Memphis. We got to go to Lafayette. We got to go to Houston. We've got to go to Austin where you guys were and where Cyril was. And, um, and I, I just think it, it really worked because, and I, I hated to take advantage of your pain, but, um, oh no, but it was good, man. It's all very raw and it's, it's all so, uh, so right at the surface. No, I'm so glad. That I'll never forget that. some of your incredible lines that day. I mean, t t something to the effect of, you know, we can't imagine a reality in which we aren't able to go back, you know, where we love, we love Austin. You said, you know, these people have been so great to us, but we're New Orleans musicians. We've got to go back. It became like, uh, you know, key lines in the film. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people took advantage of the pain. You know, just ask Spike Lee. He took advantage of a lot of pain. Here. He did. And one of the great ironies there was he didn't get there until months after we did. And initially what I asked, asked uh, stars to let me do was like a four hour film. I said, let me do two hours from inside the city where we see all the devastation and see the handful of people have come back. And then two hours from outside the city, from these other, uh, other southern cities where, where you guys had settled to survive, and which was dispersing the New Orleans music community. And they wouldn't let me do it. They made me just, I had a, I had a four hour cut, but they made me cut it down to two hours, which was okay. You know, we had, but we ended up putting a lot of that extra material on the initial Blu-ray, I'm sorry, DVD and later Blu-ray as bonus materials. Um, but, um, but then Spike Lee, HBO not only gave him 10 times more money than we had. And, uh, but, um, allowed him to to make a four-hour film and then later um we uh we wanted we wanted them to stars to do benefits um in other cities to bring money back in into new orleans but they said no we want to have have a benefit 
in New Orleans. I said, well, how does that, Diane and I said, how is that fair? Are you going to ask the people in New Orleans to fund their own, own right, rebirth? Right. <laughs> but fortunately, they agreed to uh, come up with a hundred grand that they would contribute in a couple of checks, one to the, um, one to Music Cares and one to the Tipitina's Foundation there at that, uh, at that party we did have in, in New Orleans to premiere the film. Yeah, I right. just remember Spike Lee's documentary about it. I, I, I've never seen a documentary that had crane shots before. well when you got two million bucks from hbo you can have crane shots yeah i just thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever to tell you the truth i have never watched it i i just didn't have the heart well there was one of these uh family members of the neville family i think the woman i forget her name she was a big focus of Spike Lee. She said she spent like half her time at the airport or whatever. She was basically a waste of about 45 minutes of documentary, if you ask me. Well, we felt like Cyril turned out to be just the right Neville to interview because he, he of course, is the political Neville. And he just got so heavy into uh, what was being done to the black community in particular. Frankly, some of the stuff he said was was so on the money, I felt like, eh, maybe we better save this for another time. But I, yeah. used a, and it, but I used a whole lot of it, and frankly, I use even more in that, uh, in that book of interviews that hopefully will, uh, will be the follow-up to the, to the memoir. Nice. Well, Bob, we're we're uh, we've gone very long. This is a great <laughs> show, but uh, it's uh, we're we're closing in on the 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 final moments of the podcast. But uh, as you said, you have the memoir coming out coming out, and uh, this these long form interviews. Uh, anything else on the horizon for you? That that would be enough. But uh, <laughs> well, I'm 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 about to make another another try to get this film, I mean, this book called Saloon Man about my great grandfather to, uh, to get a publisher for it. And as you know, and as you, you were kind enough to mention earlier, uh, the distributor film movement just, uh, in late November released the new Blu-ray and DVD of, uh, of, of the remastered deep blues. And it includes, uh, some, uh, some outtakes. And, uh, and I also recorded a commentary to run, uh, to run the length of the film for anybody who wants to, uh, to hear some of the background stories and all. And a whole bunch of my films, as you know, are still available on DVD and or Blu-ray, including all my New Orleans films. Can we get them on Amazon or Netflix? Or yeah, like you can stream them on Amazon. You can buy Blu-rays and DVDs. Yeah. Last of the Mississippi Jukes, uh, which, which I'm sorry, not last of the Mississippi, uh, Kingdom of Zydeco, which um, was made before my buddy Michael Tisserin's book, which later borrow, borrowed the name, but I think they, they work well together. But The Kingdom of Zydeco, which includes the Iguanas film, New Orleans Music in Exile, Rhythm and Bayous, A Roadmap to Louisiana Music, Zydeco Crossroads, um, uh, uh, what is it? A Tale of Two Cities. I guess that's most of the, New Orleans, the Louisiana stuff. So many, so many great films, Bob. You know, I watched uh, Gospel According to Al Green last night. I'd seen it before. It never gets old, man. You know, oh, well, thank uh, saxophone you. colossus, God, just on and on. You know, Deep Blues is a great place to start, but God, it, it goes so deep with with you, man. And 
uh, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for uh, coming on the podcast, man. I've, I've thought of having you for a long time. So glad we were able to do it. I, it's a pleasure to do it, and a pleasure meeting you, Manny. In the Trouble Men podcast, we always like to say, trouble never ends. But the struggle continues. Good night. Good night. Thanks so much. Hoy en el camión vi una mujer ahí sentada El pelo emblanquecido vestida de criada Me fijé en la cara del señor que manejaba ¿Cuántos años tendrá todavía trabajaba? Ay, qué tristeza, pa' qué tanto trabajar Ay, qué pobreza Levanta una muchacha en la madrugada Se pone su maquillaje y pinta la cara cansada Se olvida de todos sus sueños, ya son de venta Pa' que soñar si cada mes hay que pagar la renta Ay, qué tristeza, pa' que tanto trabajar Ay, qué pobreza ya no puedo caminar, ay qué tristeza, pa' que tanto trabajar, ay qué pobreza, ya no puedo caminar. Oh,